why don't we go ahead and find our seats and we'll get going here today. Just want to say happy Easter to you all. If you're new here, welcome to the Vine. So glad that you're here. I'm Zach, one of the pastors here. And we are so grateful that you could join us here today. What I, uh, what I am... What I'm used to on Easter Sunday in the church where I was raised is the pastor would get up and he would say, He is risen, and y'all would say, That's right. And he would say, He is risen. And then he'd say, One more time, He is risen. Amen. That's right. That's right. And so we came today to celebrate that historical fact, the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this morning, what I want to do is basically just to summarize using a key text of Scripture, kind of the bullseye of what Christianity is all about. Like, if we were to boil it down, what, what is Christianity all about? And there's a real poignant scene from Jesus' life that's going to really illustrate that for us this morning. And then we're going to connect that to what does that have to do with the resurrection of Jesus. And then we'll be done. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's no big deal. We'll put the words on the screen here. But this is from Luke chapter 5, and Luke is found, it's the third book in the New Testament, and Luke was one of Jesus' biographers. And he wrote down everything that he um, witnessed and heard about Jesus so that it could be read for generation, 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 and that's what we have in our Bibles today. So this is Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. And so let's take a look here on the screen. After this, he, so the he here is in reference to Jesus. Luke is writing about Jesus. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, for us to understand what's going on here in this short scene today, we have to understand a tax collector. Now, If we hear those words and we kind of import our definition of that, we might think the IRS. Well, 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, they didn't have the IRS like we do. They had these guys called tax collectors. And tax collectors were, in some sense, kind of sketchy characters. Well, why would that be? Well, here's why that was the case. Tax collectors were typically Jewish people. And Jewish people in the Middle East at this time, in Israel, were living in occupied territory. So 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire was dominant. From Spain to India, the Roman Empire owned it all, ruled it all. And Jewish people deeply resented that. Well, the problem here with tax collectors is they were Jewish people who were actually working for the oppressor. They were working for the Romans, and their job was to collect taxes for the Roman oppressors. Okay, so if you're a Jewish person and your friend is working for the oppressor, oppressing the Jewish people, Romans oppressing the Jewish people, and your friend is working for the Romans, you're thinking, why in the world would my friend do that? Like, that's kind of the ultimate traitor, right? But in addition to being a traitor from a Jewish point of view, tax collectors also were cheats. And they had to collect taxes for the Roman government But because they were kind of in control and receiving money, they could set those prices as whatever they wanted. So oftentimes a tax collector would line his pockets because he could. He was in a position of power and authority, and this is the price, and and I know that I'm going to shave off, you know, maybe 20, 25, 30% just for myself. 
So these guys were traitors and they were cheats, okay? Working for the man, working for the oppressor, taken above and beyond. And so that's the context here that we see. Jesus comes up to one of these guys, and his name was Levi. And he shows up at Levi's place of business, at his tax booth, and he says to him, follow me. He says, follow me. Now, Jesus could have said anything, right? He could have said, hey, I want you to join my team. Or, hey, I want you to listen to what I have to say. Or, hey, Levi, I want you to um, learn from me. But he doesn't say that. He says something even more bold and more profound. And some would say even more audacious. He says, follow me. Follow me. That, that's, that's a confident claim. That's something very profound in exerting yourself, having the confidence to call someone to follow you. That's a bold statement. So if, if, if you go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm the leader and you're going to follow me and I'm just calling you to that right now. That, in some sense, that implies a sense of authority, right? If it's misunderstood, that might be understood as something really arrogant, right? Depending on the context, it might be normal, but maybe it's not. So if you're a teacher, maybe a teacher of music, and you say to your pupil, hey, I'm going to teach you to play piano. I want it to be like this. I'm going to lead, and you're going to follow. Okay, that, that kind of makes sense. Or if you're a coach in a, on a sports team, and these junior high kids don't know how to play basketball, and you're the coach, you say, okay, I want you to do it like this. I'm going to lead, and you're going to follow. Or if it's a boss with his employees, all those are kind of scenarios that, that imply authority, right? I'm going to lead, and you're going to follow. But check out what's happening here. Jesus doesn't come to Levi and say, I'm going to train you to some specific skill, or I want you to memorize my teachings. He just says, follow me. Like, right now, with all that you are and your whole person, like, actually get up and follow me. That's not some small ask, is it? That's a bold statement. That's a bold request. Well, let's see what happens. Let's look at Levi's response. Verse 28 says this, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And leaving everything. Leaving everything. That, so we got a bold ask, we have a radical ask, and now we have a radical response. Right? Put yourself in Levi's shoes. I mean, he's a tax collector. He gets rich off of his position of authority. And it says he gets up and he leaves and he follows Jesus. What would it take for you to get an offer on something and leave immediately and go after it? That kind of instant response. Would it be an amount of money? Would it be a job opportunity? Would it be maybe a relationship? A marriage proposal? Again, Levi got rich off his position of authority, jacking people's taxes up. And so if he's leaving all of that, that's a profound response, an immediate response. So what, 
What could motivate that kind of response? He's captivated by Jesus. I mean, think about it. If you put yourself in Levi's shoes, for him to do this, Jesus has to be more valuable than money. Jesus is more captivating than lining his pockets with other people's money. Jesus is worth more than money. Well, the story continues, and we can assume that some time now has passed from the moment where Jesus calls Levi, the sketchy tax collector guy, and he rises and he leaves everything and follows him. And it says in verse 29, something interesting happened. Levi made a great feast in his house. All right, so we can assume there was some time that passed. Luke is summarizing what, what has gone down in Jesus' life. And this is, a, this is a, something that he would have remembered about this calling of Levi. And then there was a response probably sometime later because, you know, you don't just get up and leave and then have a feast prepared. So we, there was probably some time that, 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 that passed between the call and the feast here that we see, right? And you can imagine the conversations they would have had. Jesus explaining who he is and why he has the authority to call Levi to follow him and what that means and what his kingdom is all about. And so we can imagine that Levi was, rightly so, very captivated by Jesus. And so in light of this love that Jesus showed to Levi, he responds. And his response is this great feast. Hey, we're going to have people over to my house. We're going to have a party. And it's going to be in honor of Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, it's just their culture then, but our culture now, it's, it's all the same in this sense. When you have a feast, when you have food, typically that's meant to honor someone, right? So like at the Vine here, we have a lot of women having babies, like crazy. So what do we do to honor somebody when there's a baby born? We bring food. That's what we do, right? We bring food. And on the other end of the spectrum, like when somebody dies, what do we do? We bring food. When there's a marriage ceremony, you know, wouldn't it be weird if you show up to a, mar- uh, a wedding ceremony and then afterwards you go to the reception and there's no food and we're just all hanging out, just talking, I guess? Like that's not, no, we have food because it honors the bride and the groom. We have food at the high school graduation because it honors the graduate. We have food at a big birthday party to honor that person. And that's what Levi's doing here. He's throwing a party for Jesus. He's having a big feast with lots of food to honor Jesus. But think about these scenarios in our culture as well. It's not just honoring the person, but it's all the people that get invited to partake in the feast. So the wedding ceremony and wedding reception You're thinking through, who do I want to come to the wedding? Because that's a statement of honor to those people that attend, right? So I want to honor my friends and family members by inviting them to this celebration of the bride and the groom, right? And that's what's happening here as well. This party that Levi throws, it's honoring to Jesus, but it's also honoring those that are invited, right? So let's check out the guest list of this party. We keep reading in verse 29. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. All right, so the first thing we see is there's some sketchy characters at this party, right? These tax collectors. And it's not just a small group. It's a, 
what does it say? It says a large company of tax collectors. This is a big group of sketchy people from certain people's perspective. Now think about right now your current political and religious convictions, okay? We all have them, right? So whatever way you lean, left, right, center, whatever, that's not the point, but just whatever your personal convictions are, think about that. And, and then think of a couple people right now that are the opposite of those convictions, okay? Got it? Don't need to name names. Don't need to get awkward in here, right? But just think of a couple people, all right? Now, so we've got that group here, the people that are the opposite of my political and religious convictions. And then over here, think about someone who you respect or are really intrigued by. Like maybe a professor, maybe a neighbor, maybe a mentor, maybe um, some type of a coach or a family member, right? So you've got these two groups of people in mind. Now imagine you're invited to a party to honor this person that you respect, Okay, and you're like, heck yeah, I'll, sh- I'll show up to that party because I- I- I'm really intrigued by this person. I'm- this person's had a cool influence on my life. And then you show up to the party to honor this person, and the problem is you see it immediately. The party's filled with all of those people on- in this group, all of those people that you abhor their political and religious convic- convictions. Awkward party for you, Right? Right? That's what's going on in this text. That's what's going on in this text. Jesus is being honored by Levi through having this party for him. That's okay, but the guest list is not okay. Look at what verse 30 says. There's some people watching this party. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. So remember what we talked about hospitality today and 2,000 years ago when this text was written? Eating and drinking implies what? Acceptance, love, honoring, right? Your associations have certain connotations, right? And these Pharisee guys, they're like, what's up with Jesus? They're not talking to Jesus. They're talking to Jesus' disciples. See that? They grumbled at his disciples. So they pull some of his guys and said, what's going on with this party? Like, these are sketchy characters. I thought Jesus was this, but now we're thinking he's something else. So if you're new to your Bible, we might not know who these Pharisees are. So who are the Pharisees? Pharisees were the religious elite of their day. They were the moral majority of the day, okay? And from the outside, they had it all together. And they had this view that you couldn't hang out with people who didn't didn't have it all together, on the outside at least, like they did. You can't eat and drink. You can't have fellowship with. You can't go to those parties. You can't have those associations because... If you want to pursue purity, you have to hang out with people that were pure, like them, at least on the outside. You can't go, to the, you can't go and hang out with the people that are the, kind of the riffraff of the culture. Those people that don't have it all together, clearly from the outside. Like our political enemies, religious enemies, these tax collectors. So the Pharisees have this ultimate sense of superiority. 
and they question Jesus' followers. Basically saying holy people don't hang out with unholy people. But the question becomes then, who gets to define who's holy and who's not? Great question. And Jesus answered them. And his fast, this is kind of the punchline. This is kind of the bullseye where Jesus gives us a window into what he's all about and what it means to follow him. And he says this, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not, call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's the big irony of Christianity. A lot of people think that Christianity, at least, and, and, and Christians have done, I think, by and large, a poor job at this, because oftentimes Christians can give the impression that we think we do have it all together. And unfortunately, people that aren't Christians look in at us and they go, man, I think this Christianity thing, it just boils down to people just trying hard to be good people, and then, you know, as long as we're just good enough, we pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and we just kind of try hard and do hard and just help old ladies across the street and just be a bunch of do-gooders, then God will love us and that'll be fine. And that's kind of the essence of Christianity. And that's the exact opposite of Christianity. That's the opposite of what this text says. Here's the irony of Christianity. That's such good news. If you think you're holy, Jesus, the holiest one ever, has no time for you. But if you know how unholy you are and will admit it, Jesus loves to draw near to you to make you holy. How? By captivating you with his sacrificial love. Let me say that again. If you think you're holy, apart from Jesus, if you think you're holy, Jesus, the holiest one ever, has no time for you. But if you know how unholy you are and will admit it, Jesus loves to draw near to you to make you holy by captivating you with his sacrificial love. That's the whole point of verse 31. Do you see that? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if you know anything about Christianity, just know this. And we're going we're gonna to look at it in three words from this text. Need, call, repentance. Need, call, repentance. This is the core of what Christianity is all about. So verse 31, you don't go to the doctor if you feel fine, right? So the question is, how do you feel spiritually? How do you feel spiritually? Are there any needs present that you're aware of? Jesus didn't come for people that are like, oh, I'm good. He came for people that know that they're sick spiritually. He didn't come for those that were all together. He didn't come for those that look down on everybody else and are just like, yeah, why don't you get your act together like me? That's arrogance. Jesus doesn't come for the arrogant. He comes for the opposite. He comes for those that know how needy they are. 
It's just what it says, right? Those who are well, no need a doctor. Because if you've got it all together, what do you need Jesus for? If you have it all together, what do you need someone dying on the cross in your place? Why would you need someone to die for you if you're all good, right? That's Christianity. I, I, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by myself. I recognize the depth of my spiritual need. So that's what Jesus says. And then secondly, he says he came to do something. What's the verb? The verb is to call. Didn't come to call this. I did come to call this. I didn't come to call this group of people. I came to call this group of people. Jesus came to the world to call a certain category of people. And these are the people that hear Jesus' voice. Only, like I said, I'm just going to say it again. Only those who know how needy they are. That they're spiritually sick and need help. Those who know that they don't have it all together because they're painfully aware of their sin or at least willing to listen to what Jesus has to say about sin and the solution for sin that Jesus brings to Levi and anyone else willing to listen. So he, he comes for those who know they're needy and then if they're needy, he, he calls out to them. And he calls them to something. What's he call them to? It says here, he calls them to repentance. Need, call, repentance. He calls them to repentance. Well, what does repentance mean? That's kind of a funny word. We don't use very often in the English language unless you're hanging out in Christian circles. Repentance simply means turning from and turning to. So in this context is, Levi, I'm calling you away from being a cheat, being greedy, lying, and I want you to turn towards me. I'm not calling you to turn away from this and turn towards a list of do's and don'ts. No, no, no. I'm calling you to turn away from this and turn towards a relationship. That's what repentance essentially means. I'm going to turn from sin and turn towards Jesus. Repent and believe in me, Jesus says. So let's go back to where we started Jesus came to the, into the world to call people, to call sinners to repentance. And we saw that happen with Levi, right? He came to him and he called to him. He said, follow me. And that's still happening today. That's still happening today. And let's just talk about who's in the room right now. There's probably two different groups of people in the room, generally speaking. Some of you in the room are spiritually sick in need of a doctor, the great physician, and you're painfully aware of it and willing to admit it. Just own it. Nothing to hide, nothing to run from, right? And Jesus has good news for you. He's calling. He says, just like to Levi, come to me in repentance and trusting faith. See, you've exhausted all options and things seem out of control and you know that you're a sinner and that if you were to stand before God today on your own, you would be painfully lacking. But like Levi, this sketchy dude, Jesus said he came for people in your situation. That's the best news in the world. You can know for sure that you're saved from God's wrath today by turning from your sin, right, and trusting in Jesus to forgive you for your sins through being your gracious substitute. So he died on the cross 
for you if you're willing to come to him. His love was poured out for you if you're willing to receive it. He died so that you don't have to. He died so that you don't have to bear the judgment of your sin, right? We can all relate to how when we, when we, when we sin against someone, when we, when we hurt someone, harm someone, injure someone, like justice cries out in that situation, right? And that's just what Christianity is all about. All of us have injured. All of us have harmed All of us have been unjust towards God himself. None of us have attained the perfect standard of perfection that God is. So he died on the cross so that he could absorb the wrath of God in your place. He's that loving. If someone lays down their life for you, do you think that they hate you? No. If someone lays down their life for you, you look at them and they're like, oh, oh my word, how... This is the height of of what it means to to love someone, to lay down their very life. And that's what Jesus did. That's why Christianity is so captivating. It's not a, a, man, get your act together and then maybe maybe God will accept you. No, it's like, I know you can't get your act together. That's why I'm going to get your act together for you by dying on the cross for you. And so now the call is just to simply trust in that. To trust in that. And then when you truly trust in that, what happens? You want to do this. You want to turn away from this sin. Why? Because Jesus is so captivating. It's not hard to leave that tax booth where you get rich off cheating people and turn towards Jesus because Jesus is so captivating. Now some of you are sitting there thinking, well, I've never cheated people out of money. But have we lied? Have we been dishonest? Have we just been selfish? Right? There's so much sin that lurks underneath in all of us that no one even sees. But we see it. Right? Jesus said, you don't have to wallow in that. I will free you from that. Turn to me and trust me. Believe in me. And if you do that today, and you can know for sure that you have eternal life with God. So that's one group in the room. You know it, willing to admit it, yep. And I'm going to turn towards Jesus, just like Levi. Others of you in this room, just like the first group, are spiritually sick and in need of a doctor, the great physician. But you either don't know it or you do know it, but you're just not willing to admit it. Just not really sure about this whole Jesus deal. That's great. Glad you're here. And you might be thinking, Who is this Jesus character who has the audacity to call people to follow him? That's pretty bold, right? Like, who is this Jesus character that's going to attempt to define reality for me? Like, why would Jesus want to impose his morality on me? Why does he get to say right and wrong? Why does he get to define this to this? Who's a sinner and who isn't a sinner? Those are are good questions. We should ask those questions. Who is this Jesus? Why would we trust him? And that's where Easter comes into play. Easter ultimately is where Christianity stands or falls. This is why Easter is the most important fact of all known history. See, if Jesus is just some moral teacher like you know, some Middle Eastern version of Confucius. 
just some guy who was said some cool things, like, turn the other cheek, and like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And he was just crucified by the Romans because he was kind of a rebel rouser, and people didn't like him stirring things up, and, and he was crucified just like thousands and thousands of other people were crucified by the Romans 2,000 years ago. If that's all that he was, he probably doesn't have the right to call you to repentance and faith from turning away from your sin and turning towards him and trusting his life, death, and resurrection giving, given to you as a gift if you will trust it and treasure it. I mean, if he's just some dude shooting his mouth 2,000 years ago, some guys wrote some things down about him. Some people think it's kind of captivating, but, you know, he died and that's it. If that's all it is, then he doesn't have the right. That's just arrogance for him to call you to follow him. But, but if, if the tomb is empty, if the grave is empty, then this is the most revolutionary, radical, life-altering, bend-the-knee-and-worship kind of news you've ever heard in your life. If that's true, and it is, then Jesus validated all that he said, is tr- and it's true, and it's worthy to be trusted. See, it all comes down to the resurrection. It all comes down to the resurrection. This whole message, just all this Christianity stuff, it all boils down to the resurrection of Jesus. Either it happened or it didn't. And if it didn't happen, you can chuck it. Y'all should have just slept in. Like if Christianity is just kind of a hobby for you, like you, there's better hobbies, right? Like get into like dog training or something, right? You got better reasons to, 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 to get out of bed that if the resurrection is not true. But if it is, you're in the right place. If it is true, you're in the right place. And if you believe this and know that it's true, then you can come to him, just like Levi, have your sins forgiven and know that they're forgiven, and you can have ultimate peace with God. The judgment has been paid in full. There's no, nothing to account for. There's no ladder of good deeds you have to climb anymore to attain something and prove that you're worthy. No, no, he climbed down that ladder to be with you, to lay down his life for you. And now in relationship to him, it's not that you have to do all this stuff, but he so captivates your heart like, like Levi did. You, you're like, yeah, no, I'll leave this stuff behind because Jesus, man, you, you've melted my heart through your grace and your mercy. How could I not want to follow you because you're risen from the dead and I see that it's all true? A, a love this deep and wide and strong and eternal is irresistible if you truly understand how sick you are. But the good news is that Jesus came to save those who are willing to admit it. He freely took upon himself your sin and my sin, so you don't have to bear the weight of guilt and shame. He took it all on himself, and he now invites you to feel the freedom of forgiveness. So the question is, are you willing to come and receive this free gift of grace? So if Jesus rose from the dead, and he did, he has the authority to call Levi and every single person in this room. Because we're all like tax collectors and in need of a Savior. And if Jesus rose from the dead, and he did, then he's worthy to be trusted. And he does get to define reality. Reality. 
And it's for our blessing to come underneath his definition of reality. And once you know how sick you really are, but at the same time, how loved you truly are. See, following him then becomes a joy. It's not slavery. It's life. It's joy. It's like, no wonder Levi had a party for Jesus. It's like, yeah, let's have a party for Jesus. He's risen from the dead. He saved me from my sins. This is the best news in the world. Like, I, I, before I had this cancer diagnosis, and now it's just miraculously gone. That's going to instill joy in your heart, right? And this is that on an eternal scale. See, the tomb is empty. Jesus has the authority. He has the love on display. The Bible says God demonstrates his love for us, meaning he put it on display. There's a massive demonstration. Like Jesus put a big billboard right by the belt line, and it says, I love you. And and here's what the Bible says. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he rose from the dead, proving it all true. The tomb is empty. Jesus has the authority. Jesus has his loving arms open wide to receive any who will come in trusting and treasuring him by faith. And so the question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to trust him over and against all these other competing messages? Are you willing to treasure him as more valuable than anything else in life because the tomb is empty and the forgiving love of God is available for you? And if so, rise up and follow like Levi. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word that shows us who you are and what you're all about. Lord, I pray that um, right now, by the power of your spirit, you would help us. And may we see you as, just like Levi did, worthy to trust and to follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.